Hello on this blustery December morning. The, the pathetic fallacy is truly alive as you join me for the final episode in this series of the Family Law Podcast, as ever, from Pump Court Chambers. We're finishing this series with a discussion about domestic abuse in minority communities. Sadly, as we all know, domestic abuse in general has been on the rise in lockdown. Earlier this year, Pump Court joined forces with Aurora New Dawn, a charity who provides support for domestic abuse victims and there are a number of invaluable organisations across the country that do similar work and we are indebted to them. Today, I'm thrilled to be tackling this topic with none other than Pump Court Chamber's very own Naima Asif. Naima is a homegrown pump courtian and has quickly developed a focused practice in children law, public law and human rights. Naima's practice has an international element due to her dual qualification as an advocate of the High Courts in Pakistan. Alongside her work, both in the private children and public children world, Naima's practice encompasses inquiry work. She is currently instructed on the Grenfell Tower Inquiry. Hi, Naima. How are you doing? Hi, Mark. I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm thrilled, thrilled to be discussing about this topic. Um, it is really, really important, actually. Um, so I think let's crack on, if, if that's all right. Yes, yes, absolutely. Fab. Um, so I want to start with a sort of broad overview to get us into this, because as we know, different types of domestic abuse do affect different communities in different ways. So, so I think let's start with that. How, how, how do these different types affect different communities? Yes, so I think it's important to acknowledge that of course, domestic abuse impacts all women of all racial, social and economic backgrounds but the, it's the form of domestic abuse that can vary in particular depending on cultural issues. Um, women and girls from ethnic minority backgrounds um, are subjected to what's described as culturally specific forms of domestic abuse. Uh, and more often than not, the abuse can be perpetrated by multiple perpetrators, um, which can include the victim's own family, um, extended family, in-laws, and even members of the community. So in terms of the types of abuse which can be characterized as culturally specific forms of abuse, this includes forced marriage, honor-based violence, dowry-related violence, and transnational marriage abandonment. Um, practice Direction 12J um, does include these forms of abuse within its definition and it specifically provides for um, a definition in relation to abandonment, which um, refers to the practice whereby a husband in England Wales deliberately abandons or strands his foreign national spouse abroad, um, often without financial resources in order to prevent her from asserting matrimonial or residence rights in this jurisdiction. And it can involve children who are either abandoned with or separated from their mother. Um, no definition is provided in relation to the other forms of culturally specific uh, abuse within practice direction 12J. So I thought it might be helpful for us to consider the meanings and definitions. Um, yeah, just, I mean, just pausing there a moment before we go on to the definitions, we're using practice direction 12J, obviously, because it is the focal point in Children Act applications for domestic abuse considerations. Um, do you consider it a bit of a failing that PD 12J doesn't have these definitions in? 
Um, I think, in short, no. Um, for example, if you look at forced marriage, that's that includes the definition within the Family Law Act. As far as issues pertaining to honour-based abuse and dowry-related violence are concerned, the way in which the abuse manifests itself is, for example, um, physical abuse or emotional abuse. It's, I think it's the motivation behind the abuse which is makes it a culturally specific form of abuse. Right. So the, the sort of the end result might be caught within the more usual definitions, but it's the, like you say, the original motivation that's not necessarily covered. Yes. Fine. Well, I mean, having, I think it would be helpful then to actually talk, to sort of define what we are talking about here. Yeah. So if we start with um, honor-based abuse, so this is when an individual is punished for bringing dishonor and or shame to their family or community. Um, it can involve uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse. We know from some very widely reported cases in the media that it can sometimes result in murder. Um, but to give a few more examples, it can also include um, family disownment, excessive restrictions on uh, an individual's freedom, in particular freedom of movement and isolation. And the types of behaviours which result in an individual being subjected to honour-based abuse um, can be quite broad. So, for example, it can include anything from a pre-marital relationship or an extramarital affair, um, rejecting a forced marriage or even becoming too westernised. It, it really can be anything that doesn't align with the cultural or traditional beliefs of the family in question. And Honour crimes are most prevalent within communities from South Asia, North and East Africa, and, and the Middle East. Um, in relation to dowry-related abuse, I'm sure um, most people are aware that dowry is the money or goods that a bride's family um, give to her new husband and or his family. And violence typically arises when the groom or his family seek continued payments or demand goods from the bride's family who is either unable or unwilling to pay. Um, the abuse again can manifest in, in multiple ways such as physical and emotional abuse but it can also include things like false imprisonment and starvation to give a few examples. Again it's, it's an issue which is more prevalent within um, the communities from South Asia and unfortunately it, it is an issue that's widespread. Um, in, just in terms of that then is that is it is it the intention of the abuse to, to obtain a dowry then to, to effectively elicit a certain amount of money? I think it can be but I think it can also be a form of punishment. To sort of almost say is that saving face in a in a community to if the dowry isn't paid that kind of thing yes i think there can be um different reasons behind why a woman would be subjected to dowry related abuse um and i think um unless unless we're able to discuss the particular circumstances of the case it's, it's difficult to um 
fully understand what the rationale behind it is, but quite often it is a punishment or a way to um, uh, obtain the, the additional money or goods that the fam groom's family is seeking. Yeah, of course, honour-based abuse, we're seeing it a lot now in when we get police disclosure, that the police are becoming increasingly alive to this risk, um, this dynamic in certain cases, aren't they? Yes, yes. I think there is now more awareness, which is why it, um, it, it comes up a lot more in, in police disclosure and in cases that we um, frequently deal with. I, I don't necessarily think it's because the um, incidents of one-based violence have increased. I just think there is more awareness and the police are now trying to tackle the issues a lot more uh, than, they, than they did um, you know, 10 years ago. Mm. Um, well, so clearly some of these forms of abuse are specific to the communities that they're, they're in. Um, presumably within those communities, there, is, there are inbuilt barriers in terms of victims being able to actually report these issues to the authorities. Yes. Um, I think we know that it's difficult for any victim of domestic abuse to seek help um, for, for many different reasons. Um, additional barriers which might impact upon a victim of culturally specific abuse seeking help could include um, language barriers, uh, lack of support from the individual's own family, um, which arguably in itself could be a form of unbased abuse. Um, lacking knowledge about the legal system and the laws, um, not knowing who can help or where to go to for help, and of course concerns about um, immigration status and concerns around deportation and what that will mean in particular if there are children involved. So all of these issues will act as barriers to victims seeking help. So, uh, so I mean, it's really, really tough then, obviously, but as you say, there is already this threshold that any victim of domestic abuse is going to really, really struggle to report that. But, but on top of that, when your entire life can be thrown into question, it's, well, it's amazing that people do have the strength to report it, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I think it takes a lot of courage. Um, and, you know, all, all victims should be commended for their ability to, to come forward and, and report these incidents of abuse. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, coming back to PD12J, uh, I was going to ask how the family courts are tackling these issues, but I suppose actually the first question is, are they tackling these issues? Um, well, in terms of Children Act applications, um, practice direction 12J will need to be followed. Um, it specifically recognises culturally specific forms of domestic abuse and in, in the same way that we deal with any case where domestic abuse is alleged, um, the court will need to determine whether the alleged abuse um, is relevant to welfare issues or to the issue of contact. And if it's in dispute, conduct a fact-finding hearing to establish the factual matrix. It, it might be sensible to raise um, at an early stage and at the prohydra that there are issues pertaining to culturally specific forms of abuse. Perhaps note that on the order and consider at that point how those issues might be dealt with. 
um, in, in some cases, it might be appropriate for the court to consider whether or not an expert needs to be appointed. Well, I was going to um, say that that's, that's an issue, isn't it? Because I think, well, I'm sure you, uh, along with me have, have, and everyone, all our colleagues are finding this, that a couple of years ago, when we'd be at Fahidra stage looking at potential, looking at C1A with allegations, and there was, for example, controlling and coercive behaviour uh, alleged, a lot of courts would look at that and say, well, it's not really obvious, is it? It's not the same as a punch in the face and not necessarily treat it with the same seriousness uh, as that, despite the fact that it, it is as egregious, if not possibly worse. And so it's these more potentially more nuanced cultural considerations that aren't as obvious to the court. And it's a matter of perhaps, yeah, getting someone outside to actually explain that. Yeah, exactly. Um... I think although there is a lot more awareness of these issues, um, the full impact of, of, of these types of behaviours is not properly understood. And I think sometimes having an expert on board can really assist the court in, in determining how such behaviours will have uh, an impact on the child and, and on, on the mother um, so, as well. Sorry, to, uh, just in terms of then an, an expert, we're, we're talking sort of a fairly broad term. What kind of expert would you have in mind then? Um, well, you could always consider um, domestic abuse charities, which deal with um, culturally specific forms of abuse um, and, and see whether or not there is an individual within those organisations who is in a position to be able to advise. Um, yeah, so in, in a case that I was involved in some time ago, we considered whether it might be appropriate to um, identify an ISW who had the requisite experience of dealing with these types of cases. Um, and if the court decides to direct a Section 7 report, whether um, the author of the report, be it from CAFCAS or from the local authority, um, should have some experience in dealing with these types of cases. I suppose there's two angles to it, isn't there? There's the first that's the um, having an expert or someone to help in identify the scope of allegations and, and explain to the court why actually it's really important that this allegation is proven because it goes to these perhaps less well-known cultural considerations. And then it's the the welfare analysis, which is where perhaps an ISW would come in. But would you would you be seeking to have an ISW inform scope of allegations at an early stage, or, or is that just down to the lawyers to do their job? I think you could. I think the court will always be assisted um, from having some evidence from an independent social worker who can explain um, how certain forms of domestic abuse can impact upon the welfare of a child. So I think um, it, that information is probably going to be better received if it comes from an expert rather than the lawyers, because I suspect what um, what the other side would be arguing is, is that the court doesn't have any evidence um, to this effect. And so it needs to be disregarded. Well, I mean, the court never has any evidence. That's the problem at Fahedra's. It's uh, it's all slightly speculative. But I suppose it's not it's not uncommon for us to be at Fahedra and have Kafkas in the room uh, or on the call, as it is the, these days, uh, and give some pointers as to the kind of allegations that they think will will be essential. Because at the end of the day, they're looking at 
a firm needing a firm factual matrix on which to base a section seven report, aren't they? Yes, exactly. Um, we've well, okay. So we've got we know that family courts are, have got the structure of PD twelve J, and we've talked in the in the context of Children Act applications. But just staying in that family context, but but outside of children proceedings, um, tell me a bit about forced marriage protection orders. Yeah. So. Um... The Section 63A of the Family Law Act 1996 introduced um, the forced marriage protection order and the objective of that order is to protect a person from being forced into a marriage, from any attempt at being forced into a marriage and by providing protection and assistance if already forced into a marriage. Um, it, in terms of um, what the court needs to consider when making uh, an, an order for a forced marriage protection order, <clears throat> in deciding whether to make this order, the court must have regard to all the circumstances of the case, including the need to secure the health, safety, and well-being of the person uh, to be protected, and to consider the wishes and feelings of the person to be protected so far as they are ascertainable. Um, and it is appropriate to do so in light of the person's age and understanding. So how would, um, how would an application typically work then? Would you be making it without notice? Yes, you, you can make an application without notice. Um, the courts will make uh, ex parte forced marriage protection orders uh, when it's just and convenient to do so. Um, the court must have regard to all the circumstances when considering whether to make a, a without notice order and in particular will consider what if any risk of sig significant harm there would be to the person to be protected or to another person if the order is not made immediately, um, whether the applicant would be deterred or prevented from making an application if the order is not made immediately and whether there are reasons to believe that the respondent is uh, aware of proceedings and is evading service uh, and the delay in affecting service will cause serious prejudice to the person to be protected. So in terms of sort of structurally, in terms of the proceedings, is it, is it really along the same lines as a, a non-molestation order application? You'd have potentially without notice hearing, return date, Scott schedule, tear up for a fact finding slash final hearing? Yes, yes. Um, recently, uh, the president provided some guidance on making forced marriage protection orders um, in the case of Rui K. Um, this case involved uh, an adult with mental capacity um, who was the subject of an order. Um, on appeal, the president confirmed that the court's wide jurisdiction to protect a person from a forced marriage it included an adult who had capacity. Um, the, court, the president set out a four-stage route map for courts uh, to consider when making um, these orders. And stage one is for the court to establish the underlying facts based on admissible evidence, the civil standard of proof um, applies, and the burden of proof is uh, on the applicant. Um, when making uh, a forced marriage protection order after contested on notice hearing, um, it will be necessary for the court to determine any relevant factual issues. Um, 
factual issues, but when considering an application on an ex parte basis, the court's primary uh, role is protective. And so an order can be made without detailed investigation of factual issues. Um, at stage two, based on the facts that have been found, the court should determine whether the purpose identified in section 63A1 is established, namely that there is a need to protect a person from being forced into a marriage or any attempt to be forced into a marriage or that that person has been forced into a marriage. Um, at stage three, um, based upon the facts that have been found, the court must then assess both the risks and the protective factors um, that relate to the particular circumstances of the individual who is said to be vulnerable to forced marriage. And at the conclusion of stage three, the court must explicitly consider whether or not the facts as found are sufficient to establish a real and immediate risk um, of the subject of the application suffering from inhumane and degre degrading treatment sufficient to cross the Article 3 threshold. And at stage four, if the facts are sufficient to establish a risk that the subject will experience conduct sufficient to satisfy Article 3, um, the court must then undertake an exercise of achieving accommodation between the necessity of protecting the subject of the application from the risk of harm under Article 3 and the need to respect their family and private life under Article 8 and within that respect for their autonomy. Mm. So just I mean, finishing on this point, in practice, you get the order for a for what, what's the actual practical effect of a forced marriage protection order? So the order can um, either restrict, prohibit um, a person from forcing another person into a forced marriage. It can also um, relate to conduct outside of this jurisdiction. It can also involve other respondents who may become involved um, in other respects, as well as um, the respondents of any kind. And similarly to a non-molestation order, a breach of, of uh, a forced marriage protection order is a criminal offence. Um, so it, it's a power. It's a powerful order to have. Yes. And I mean, I suppose yeah. it is. It is an example of of the the family court stepping up and dealing with one of the issues that you identified at the start of this podcast head on. Exactly. Great. Well, I think. Um, no, I'm going to save your voice and um, and call it a day. I think that's all we have time for today. And uh, indeed, the, this series, we do have great plans for the next series. We will continue to host external experts, both in the realms of tax and children law, looking at the use of independent social workers uh, and appointments of guardians. We'll also be dealing with a topic we'd hope to have in this series, but due to scheduling, we're pushing back, namely looking at uh, variation in nuptial settlements. But... Naima, thank you so much um, for joining me to discuss this topic. It's really been invaluable to get your expert view uh, on this. Um, hopefully this podcast, dear listeners, and what I've just said is enough to whet your appetite for when we return in the new year. As ever, though, if you do have any uh, comments, suggestions or ideas, please do get in touch with me and Tara. Uh, all that's left for me to do is to say thank you again to Naima. 
Thank you, listeners, and uh, have a very merry festive period, however you are celebrating it in this most unique of years. Goodbye. Thank you.